Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, it's Sean. Today's episode deals directly with suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline can be reached by dialing 988. Is life worth living? Albert Camus called this the only serious philosophical question. To be or not to be, as someone else once put it. We don't choose to be born into this world, but we do have the power to decide to lead it. And people do make this choice. A lot. The CDC estimates there were 1.7 million suicide attempts in the year 2021, in the U.S. alone. Perhaps more staggering is the estimation that more than 12 million Americans reported thinking seriously about suicide in that same year. Given how widespread those thoughts are, and how obviously urgent this issue is, it's unfortunate that, as a society, we really aren't able to talk about suicide in a more dignified way. Many of us still think of those who die by suicide as morally blameworthy. When a celebrity takes their own life, we think, why? They had everything. And what we mean by that is that we think certain other people's lives are great and worth living. And we're puzzled by their choice to not live. The novelist David Foster Wallace describes suicide as akin to jumping from a burning building, writing, it's not desiring the fall, it's terror of the flames. It's a vivid description from someone who, in 2008, decided for himself and took his own life. And look, before I go any further here, I should say, we're going to have a real conversation about suicide on the show today. And while this conversation is going to include some candid talk of what it's like to have suicidal thoughts, it will also include many resources and strategies for coping with those thoughts from a guest who has lived his whole life with what he calls a suicidal mind. But if you're struggling with thoughts of suicide and think, this episode might not be for me right now, turn it off. And as I mentioned at the top, Dialing 988 will connect you to the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, where there will be someone real on the other end who will talk with you and listen. 
I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Clancy Martin. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and he's written a number of books, including a hit novel in 2009 called How to Sell. And he's also tried to kill himself at least 10 times. His new book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. The book approaches this very serious philosophical question through deeply honest, personal reflection about his own experience with suicide. Clancy has not only spent his life thinking about suicide, he's spoken to a ton of other people who have as well. And the book is full of the wisdom and resources that he has to offer. As he says in the preface, Clancy wrote the book explicitly for people like him who struggle with the desire to kill themselves. And he includes sections at the end that offer direct help for those who are currently in the midst of these thoughts. But I wanted to start by asking him about what he calls our society's fundamentally dishonorable relationship with suicide. We like to pretend that we are overcoming the stigma and the taboo against suicide in our culture. And I think we are making some improvements on it. But a friend of mine who's one of the most famous living feminist philosophers wrote to me to say she had appreciated the book. And the reason she said she appreciated the book so much is she had always thought, truly believed, that suicide was something that privileged white men did. It was a problem of someone who had no other problems and so kind of worried himself into this, as she described it, extremely selfish act. And I was amazed by this email because this is a person who's 10 times smarter than I am. She's, she's such an excellent philosopher to have such a confused view about what it is like to suffer from suicidal thinking, to die by suicide from such a, a prominent and important intellectual. This is the dishonorableness of our view of suicide in our culture. I mean, when we have something like a 72-hour lockdown. This is really called the 5150 hold, and it's when someone makes an attempt and fails, and then they, they won't release you in, from the care of the hospital or wherever you are for 72 hours. It's a holdover of what we used to do to failed suicides, which is just incarcerate them for varying degrees of time. And the ways in which suicides have been treated and the families of suicidal people that have been treated over the years is absolutely disgraceful. And we we like to pretend that we've gotten past that way of thinking that suicide is a sin, that suicide is incredibly selfish. You know, there's something morally blameworthy about the person who attempts suicide or would even consider attempting suicide. We like to think we've gotten past that, but we haven't. And to try to think about it and speak about it honorably is not only to recognize the truth that, as the World Health Organization tells us at least 10% of the world population suffers from chronic suicidal ideation. That's, you know, coming up on nearly a billion people. And the truth that it's a leading cause of death around the world, and in certain populations, the number one or the number two cause of death, the solution 
to this problem is dealing with it in, in an honorable way. That is to say, allowing people to talk about it, to admit to it, to reach out for help, and also being willing to help people. I want to talk a little bit about you because this book is a document in many ways of your struggles with suicide and your many, thankfully unsuccessful, attempts to kill yourself. How early did this start for you? For me, Sean, it's strange, although I have friends who report the same thing, but my earliest memories, memories that must come from two or three years old because I remember my parents were still married. Memories of like the color of the carpet and having this feeling that I wanted to die. Maybe not having the conception of killing myself yet, but have very much having the feeling of wanting to die. And then by the time I get to some sort of something like continuity of memory at around age four, five, and definitely by age six, then having a robust conception of, okay, I want to, I don't just want to die, I actually want to kill myself. And then for me, um, until quite recently, all of my experience has been um, colored, let's say, by this desire to take my own life and as a daily thing um always every day you know not always every day all day long thinking okay i'm going to try to kill myself but never having a day go by when i didn't think okay yeah i want to kill myself as early as six really absolutely no question about it wow. and the funny thing was i thought that everybody thought this way and just nobody was talking about it. But I thought that every, all my friends were feeling the same way. My parents were feeling the same way. My brothers and sisters were feeling the same way. And we were all just like kind of collectively keeping this secret that we all wanted to kill ourselves. And I remember when I first learned everybody didn't want to kill themselves. I was, well, I actually, I didn't believe it. I thought they were lying to me. <laughs> and uh, it was hard for me to accept that everybody didn't feel this way. How many times over the course of your life have you attempted? Well, more than 10 that I've made, you know, a really earnest attempt. And I think fewer than 20 that have resulted in some kind of consequence. It's a little bit of a tricky thing to define because I went through a period of time when I was in the luxury jewelry business and we all owned guns. So I would try to kill myself every day. Um, and I, this, I mean, every day for months. Jesus. Now, I count that as one time. <laughs> so it, it depends, you know, what counts as an attempt. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I see myself as a kind of ridiculous figure in the history of suicide. Now, I will tell you, I have met people who've tried more times than I have in the psychiatric hospital. And um, I remember this one young woman in particular who had made multiple attempts, um, you know, more than 20 attempts. And we slowly became friends in the psychiatric hospital. And she was so helpful to me because I could see how perfect she was. I mean, how irreplaceable, how priceless a person she was, you know, and how much she needed to live and deserved to live and how good she was. 
She was just being way too hard on herself in every conceivable way. And she really helped me to start to see, like, if only I could look at myself in, in that way, you know? Yeah. She's helped me when talking to other suicidal people. I always tell them, you know, imagine how you probably look to the people around you. You think of yourself with such loathing, but that's not how the people around you are thinking of you. Well, I mean, it also speaks, and, and I suppose there, there is a real lesson in the fact that, and you talk about this, you had the worst year of your life in 2009, your first big book is published to all this applause and acclaim and admiration. You know, you made it. And then that immediately gives way to crippling depression, you know? And it's a reminder that all the success in the world isn't immunity against these kinds of demons, which is why it shouldn't surprise us when someone like an Anthony Bourdain, who, who you write about in the book, decides to take his own life. Things can seem perfect from the outside, or someone can seem to have everything going for them, but you have no fucking idea the hell that may be going on inside their, their own mind. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also, what you think of as external good things, this person has, you know, as you say, every possible advantage, everything going for them, everything that you want even, you see, this person has and you don't have. None of those things necessarily have anything to do with whether or not that person actually wants to live or feels like they are capable of going on living or relate in any sort of meaningful way to the mental suffering they might be enduring. Let me ask you, you, you say in the book that you've lived all your life or most of your life with two incompatible ideas in your own head. I wish I were dead and I'm glad my suicides failed. Now, <laughs> I'd like to think that after a while, the fact that you're continually glad your suicide attempts have failed would make you less inclined to suicide. But it hasn't. Why not? Yeah, it's a good observation. And it's right at the very heart of the paradox of suicidal thinking. The thing is... Speaking for myself and for, you know, many people I've talked to about their suicidal thinking, you can look around you at the people who need you, the people who depend on you, mm -hmm. the people you are so grateful to have in your life, the people you love and, and you hope they love you, and feel this enormous gratitude and feel so glad that you didn't die. And yet... When your thinking is suddenly going in a bad direction, that thinking starts to turn on itself and you slowly but surely, or sometimes very quickly, become convinced that all of these good things in your life are things that you don't deserve, that the people you love would be better off without you, that the proof that you are willing to consider exiting this life because you're in such mental suffering is a further demonstration of the fact that they would be better off without you. You think, oh, it might be six months or a year that they think to themselves, oh, I wish dad hadn't killed himself, but after that, they'll be so much better off without this poisonous person around them. There's a, a variety of paradoxes that go with suicidal thinking, and this is one of the worst ones, I think. This is such an honest book, and I really want to meet you there 
in this conversation. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been truly suicidal, though I'd be lying if I said the thought hasn't occurred to me before. But I do deal with depression, particularly the last five, six, seven years. And you write in the book, and now I'm quoting you, that I have come to understand that I am addicted to the thought of suicide, and that lately I am what we might call a recovering suicide addict. I have never heard suicide defined in that way before, and I would love for you to explain why you think of suicide as an addiction and how that framing has helped you understand your own mind, really. Yeah, um, it's a wonderful question. Thank you so much. And I think, again, it's for me, it's at the very heart of suicidal thinking and a way out of suicidal thinking. Um, the Buddha teaches this parable of the two darts. And it's one of the more famous parables of the Buddha. And the, the first dart is the dart of suffering. And the second dart is the reaction we have to the suffering. And the Buddha says that we can't do anything about that first start. That is just part of the way life is. There's going to be all kinds of suffering. The second dart, however, we can do a lot about. We ultimately, in the Buddha's way of thinking, are in control of the second dart. Now, when it comes to how we react to suffering, you will notice that we have these kinds of patterns of beliefs and patterns of behavior that we apply to the different kinds of suffering that we experience. There are all sorts of different patterns that people have. The one of the most familiar and one of the most widely discussed in the existentialist literature on suffering is the habit of distraction. You know, you're in some kind of mental pain, so you distract yourself away from that pain. Now, for some people, the pattern of thinking to all kinds of different pain, panic, stress they have in their life is to run away from it. And for lots of us, I think, when, when we experience pain, you know, it's a, one expects this. You put your finger in a fire and boy, you pull your finger out, right? So it's a natural thing when you're experiencing a certain kind of pain, but it's tricky when it's mental pain. You know, when the suffering is mental, you're experiencing that kind of suffering. And so for someone like me, you experience this mental pain and you think to yourself, how can I run away from this mental pain? It's with me wherever I go. It's my, it is me. It's myself. And you start to think there's only one way for me to escape the pain that is myself. And that's to turn me off. Yeah. And you think turning me off. How do I do that? Well, there's a few different ways. One is getting really, really drunk. <laughs> Used to work for me for a long time, then stopped working. People get addicted to all kinds of substances for this reason, I think, for this like wanting to escape the pain of being themselves. Another way is suicide. And for me, the dominant pattern from a very early age became suicide as the way of, you know, that's my solution to this problem. And so I had to start to break that pattern. I love the line from William Styron. He describes extreme depression as being caught, quote, in a state of unrealistic hopelessness. And unrealistic feels like the key word there, don't you think? I mean, that, that thing that you're feeling, that, that quicksand that you're stuck in, like no matter how intense or dark, 
it won't last, but it is so hard to see that in the moment. And it sounds kind of like what you're describing here. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, the hope, I think, for someone who who suffers from any kind of addictive response to mental suffering is that trying to remember that these things go in waves, you know, trying to remember. This is why I particularly worry about young people, because it's easier to remember that there is sun behind the clouds if you've been through this experience a few times. But if it's your first time or your second time going through this, maybe you're incapable of knowing that this depression that is so intense right now is going to pass. And one of the things that is funny that all of us notice, I think, is that um, when it comes to the good feelings that we experience, they tend to feel a little tentative. They tend to have a kind of lack of confidence about them. But the really bad things that we experience, they tend to feel so sure of themselves. Isn't that the truth? Man, that really is the truth. Yeah, isn't it? The simple truth, like when you're angry, you think, okay, finally now I am speaking the truth. Yeah. <laughs> your happiness feels tentative, but your depression feels final and irrevocable and absolutely certain. So it's just, it's a hard thing to be able to wait that out. But for me, this is one of the most important skills that a person who suffers from suicidal thinking can cultivate is to try to cultivate the skill of patience and to recognize that one of the greatest virtues a person can have is just the ability to wait. If you can really try to let yourself wait, things will almost always take care of themselves and or improve. Yeah, you actually write in the book, this really landed with me. I've been sort of thinking about it since, you know, you talk about impatience as a trait characteristic of the suicidally inclined. And there's a quote in there from James Hillman, suicide is the urge for hasty transformation. And it explains so much. Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, it really... If you talk, I think, to any suicidal person or a person who's struggled with suicidal ideation, they will understand, yeah, hasty transformation, the urge for hasty transformation, exactly. And if you can try to remember not to be hasty, as Lao Tzu says, nature never hurries and yet everything is accomplished. I mean, I try to tell myself that every day, <laughs> nature never hurries and yet everything is accomplished. Albert Camus, who we brought up a little earlier, also has a lot to say about the absurdity of life. After a quick break, I'll ask Clancy whether Camus' philosophy has helped him. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. 
Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. There's a passage in Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, which you reference as one must in a book about this subject, where he's talking about this experience that someone has when they confront the absurdity of their own existence. He says it's like a stage set collapsing, you know, and there's this rupture, and suddenly you, you can feel very intensely the nothingness under your feet, and it spreads quickly to your whole life. You realize the inanity of the routines that make up your day-to-day. And if you sit with those thoughts for long enough, it can unravel you. And I think a lot of us have experienced something like this. I I know I have. And I know you've read that book where he describes suicide as the most important philosophical question or the fundamental philosophical question. Did that book and and his account of suicide resonate with you? Did it help you make sense of, of your own battles? You know, it's interesting. It's been helping me more and more. I, For me, it was sort of a two-stage process to be totally clear and honest about how I think my relationship with suicidal thinking has gone. And the first stage, I really had to change the belief that I had that was a very deep core belief of mine that suicide was a good thing, that suicide was the right thing for me. This idea was just really deep in my psyche. Once that belief changed or started to change, then my mind began to open up to arguments like Camus, when Camus says, for example, that there is no fate that cannot be surmounted by scorn. Years ago, I didn't find this to be a satisfactory response, but after having done the work that went into writing this book and the kind of self-examination that was involved and self-confrontation that was involved in writing this book and thinking about anyone being able to see these aspects of me and the ways in which I had failed, failed as a human being, failed as a father, failed in all these different ways. Then I started to be able to let go of this idea that suicide was a good thing. And I started to realize, no, suicide is in fact a bad thing for me, even if I still sometimes feel it's a lure. And then I can see what Camus means. Yeah, we all get that. The inanity, the seemingly purposelessness of all these things, and yet the fact that nevertheless, in the face of all this apparent meaninglessness, that we continue to demand meaning and the pain we experience in that conflict, though I'll still feel the pull of suicide some days, I can say, you know what? Uh, I apologize for my language, but fuck you. Fuck you, suicide. (laughs) You might be really wanting to take me. You can't have me. I'm sorry. Can you tell me about that pull? Hmm? Because one of the things that's interesting that you do in this book and that is valuable is, and it's something I've really only encountered in fiction, 
particularly some of Dostoevsky's books, where you're you're almost describing this kind of inner dialogue with yourself, where you're almost convincing yourself <laughs> that you don't deserve to live. And is the pull more this feeling that there's no sort of reason for living, there's no reason for going on, or is it more you just start to feel that you're not worthy of living? I think it can be both. For me, I think it has generally been a, absolutely a feeling of worthlessness. If you look at uh, the literature on suicide, you will find, you know, so many different reasons. But one or another kind of worthlessness is uh, definitely a common theme to so much of the literature. But also in so many of the even the very oldest texts that we have on suicide, you find the same complaint that life itself just doesn't provide the kind of meaning that one wants from life. And so we're going to reject life. And this is the particular concern that Camus is worrying about. And I think he is right when he insists that our ability to recognize that Life is not going to provide us with the kind of meaning that we want, and yet we are going to continue to insist on needing that meaning, that somehow in that tension, there is this kind of creative space where human beings will be able to develop a very particular kind of flourishing. Now, Camus gives different accounts of what that flourishing might look like. But my favorite, and this is the exact same conclusion that Dostoevsky comes to, is that helping other people, compassion, um, the recognition that we're all suffering together. Solidarity. Yes, yeah, solidarity, exactly. Like, okay, you're really going through it. I'm really going through it. We're all really going through it. So, you know, what's the same thing to do in that case is to try to help each other. It also may be, you know, this is something that Cervantes gets right. It also ought to be, I think, a fit subject for laughing at ourselves, you know, that like, hey, <laughs> we desperately want this meaning. This meaning is not available. I mean, it's kind of a comical situation. And uh, I, I have to be able to laugh at myself, you know, because anybody who's tried to kill himself as many times as I have and, and has failed. And some of the methods I've used, I should say, are pretty reliable. <laughs> Nevertheless, you know, uh, I'm still, I'm still here really kind of against the odds. Uh, if I can't laugh at myself, it's, it really has been pointless. You know, Toystoevsky thought that we all needed some reason for living, some higher transcendent purpose. I, I'm I'm not sure about that, and I don't know if you are either. I mean, I I guess a lot turns on what we mean by reason. I don't think we need a story that justifies life or a story about life after death, but I do think we need love. I do think we need a source of meaning outside ourselves, and I do think we need the capacity to pay attention to things that matter and turn away from things that don't. Is that kind of where you land at the end of all this? I think it's, yeah, I think that's exactly where I land. And I think we have to be a little more nimble uh, than we have a tendency to be when it comes to our thinking about this question of meaning. It seems to me that we have a kind of habit of thinking 
that our ordinary material environments are dictating to us the terms of our existence. But this is so obviously false. It's all the vast realms of our interior lives that are, that are really um, revealing to us what matters. And once you recognize that, then you might realize that the briefest little experience, like a glancing up and seeing a hummingbird outside the window of your office or a kiss between you and someone you love or the tiniest little momentary things could matter vastly more than, you know, how much money you have in your checking account or what kind of house that you live in or all these external things, you know. Mm -hmm. We already kind of actually know that they do. It's just that we get so confused. So I think it's already there waiting for us. We're just, we have so many habits of thought that mislead us away from what is right in front of us, you know. I mean, I think that goes back to what you were saying about patience, that's a profound observation. And I, I imagine this is an impulse I suspect we all share to one degree or another. This impulse to escape ourselves. And you mentioned this earlier, and this is something you, you write in the book, that you have been sort of working this idea out that you're, you're addicted to suicidal thinking, which is really just another way of saying, and now I'm quoting you, I'm addicted to Clancy. Right. I'm addicted to a certain idea of myself and my life. What does it mean to say you're addicted to a certain idea of yourself? Well, what I mean is I had invested myself into this way of thinking about the kind of person I ought to be. A much more generous person than I am, a much more loving person than I am, a much kinder person than I am, a much more talented person than I am, a much more successful person than I am, all of these things. I had, I had committed myself to this idea of this other Clancy. And this other Clancy would look back at the Clancy that I am with contempt and deep disappointment. And what I had to start to do, and I, this is something that's an off, very much an ongoing thing for me, is to start to let go of that idea of Clancy, to kind of start to try to discover the actual Clancy as he actually exists, you know, just the, the plain old ordinary Clancy. And as I have just barely begun on that project, then I realize, oh, I can start to accept that guy in something more like the way I can accept other people. When I don't want them to be someone other than they are, you know. I often think my goal for myself, but here I go again, is to try and view the human beings around me the way that I view my children. You know, if I could just look at all the human beings around me the way I look at my children, there again, so much fear, so much judgment, so much dogmatism vanishes from my life. Yeah, but do you think that's realistic, though, Clancy? Do you think any of us are capable of that? 
Well, they see there, that's what I'm saying. There I go again. I'm like now again yeah. creating some kind of Clancy that it, <laughs> not that it's not worth aspiring to. I just, <laughs> right. man. <laughs> but no, you're exactly right, Sean. You're, you're pointing to me that it's that kind of thinking that will make me suicidal, you know? And I'll say, there he goes. He's failing to do that. Fucking it up again. There I go. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The real trick is like trying to be able to accept myself a little bit more in the way that I accept my own children. If I can do that, even just a little bit, you know, I say this prayer every day and every night before I go to bed and every morning when I get up, I say this prayer that includes the line, make me a little less selfish. Hmm. And I love that a little less part of it, you know, yeah, that's absolutely key, I think. I've got to stop being so dogmatic. It's the dogmatism that's going to kill me, you know? And I don't want to go to my grave a dogmatist too. I, I hope that I can die a natural death now, die however it comes out. But I'd rather not die by suicide. And I think there's now maybe, knock on wood, don't want to jinx myself, some kind of hope that I could not die by suicide. And and if that is the case, uh, God preserve me from from being a dogmatist as I go, you know? Well, the dogmatism, that's interesting to me. And I don't want to say at any point in this conversation, and you don't say this in the book, that you've conquered your demons in that sense. I mean, the whole point is that you're, you're always going to be a recovering right. suicide addict. But yep. you have learned some things along the way that have helped you, that are helping. And you wrote this near the end. You said, for me, being too dogmatic about my beliefs has often led to feelings of helplessness and anguish. So in the past few years, I've been trying to be less sure of myself, less confident about what I think I know. How has becoming less rigid in, in your personality and, and also in sort of your view of the world, less certain about what you think you know, how has that helped you with this challenge? It's helped me so much because it's helped me to kind of liberate myself from this right and wrong way of thinking where I always wind up seeing that I, there's something wrong with me, you know? If I'm unsure, if I really don't know, then it's much easier for me to say, well, and I really don't know about whether I am to blame or whether there's something wrong with me, whether there's something so contemptible about me. For me, the flip side of feeling certain about things as Clancy is failing at all of these things, Clancy is causing all this unhappiness to other people. But as I, as I feel less certain, then I'm sort of like, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. It's a much easier space. And um, we're talking about the urge for hasty transformation. Well, if I don't know, right. you know, if I'm just kind of open to being right, being wrong, whatever I genuinely don't know, well, then there's nothing I really have to change. I'd be sort of foolish to suppose I had to change something because I don't know, you know, I mean, who knows? So it's an incredibly liberating thing. It helps you let go of control. And once you don't feel so much need to control, well, the ultimate, the ultimate control is the desire to kill yourself and the hmm. making the attempt to kill yourself. You know, there is no more robust notion of taking control than that. But if you're, if you're uncertain, then you don't really want to control things so very much. You know, it's, it's, it's helpful as a parent too, honestly. Um, yeah, there, there's liberation and that surrender. 
right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Once you realize I only, you know, I do my best to provide kind of the warmest arms I can for these kids. Other than that, you know, it's going to have to work out the way it works out. Uh, then, <laughs> then you're a lot less freaked out. <laughs> yeah. You know, you I mean, talking about your, your, your kids, this is something you, you discuss in the book that your family becomes a source of, of strength and purpose. And you, you start to realize that your own well-being and every sense of the word really is interwoven with theirs. And, you know, I think about this a lot and I'm not sure if I've really been able to integrate it into my actual life, but there is no doubt in my mind, absolutely no doubt that the only thing that will matter to me at the end of my life is my family, and my friends, it's the relationships, and that none of my accomplishments will mean a thing. No one will care about any of the books I've written or my articles or this podcast. I mean, even when great writers, great artists, when they die, almost without exception, they're rather quickly forgotten, and the world just keeps humming along. And to the extent that depression and suicide are events that occur inside our own heads, the answer seems to me, and I think it seems to you as well, that it's almost always to get outside your own head, to throw yourself into your relationships, into the world. I love that Voltaire quote, that an almost infallible means of saving yourself from the desire of self-destruction is always to have something to do. To do. Yeah. I love that, man. I love that. It's true. We can recognize that sometimes selfishness is an incredibly important part of someone making a suicide attempt or dying by suicide without turning that into a moral judgment against the person who is making that attempt. After all, so much of what we do is selfish. Yeah. But the key then for the person who feels suicidal is to recognize that connection. Once you accept that connection, then there is this opportunity you realize, oh, yeah, well, maybe if I just let go of that feeling of Clancy mattering so much and worried about some other things, maybe then that desire to annihilate Clancy would subside. You, so you try it out, see if it works. And lo and behold, it does. Yeah, and I love the idea that comes up later in that final chapter that on some level it it really is essential to remind ourselves that we're not special, like not really, except as you say, in the way that everyone's special, which is that we're all conscious, self-aware creatures. And all that really means is that you're not special in your suffering or in your anxieties, in your angst. Everyone has their inner demons. You're, you're not uniquely broken. And it's part of the reason why I find this notion of suicide as a kind of addiction very useful, because it, it helps me to, to realize that addiction isn't necessarily a binary thing right exactly it is more like a habit or impulse and it's near universal isn't it like addiction is a kind of continuum and we're all on it somewhere in our own different ways with our own various addictions exactly that's 100 percent right and then once you recognize that once you recognize that it's a continuum and that everyone is on this continuum with their own addictions of all different kinds you know beliefs themselves are really just addictions um then uh, I think you can see, oh, yeah, it isn't on or off. It isn't binary, as you say. And so it's okay to, <laughs> to exist in that gray space, you know. You can let yourself be a little bit. Yeah. 
And as soon, once you let yourself be a little bit, once you stop fighting the addiction so hard, you will find that the addiction starts loosening its grasp on you, loosening up a little bit. It isn't so much in control of you as you had supposed. We've got to take one last quick break. But when we come back, Clancy tells me some of the best advice he says he's ever gotten. You got some advice from a friend once. You were going through a hard time and you reached out and then apologized saying, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. And they told you, no, 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 feel sorry for yourself. They actually said, feel more sorry for yourself. And you said that was some of the best advice you've ever been given. I'd love to know why. Yeah, that's Diane Williams, possibly America's greatest living avant-garde short story writer who taught me so much about writing. And Diane said, yeah, never say that you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself. Feel more sorry for yourself. And the reason that I thought this was so profound is it has to do with this question we've been talking about throughout our conversation about acceptance, you know, really about this second dart. The first dart in this instance is the feeling sorry for yourself, the pain of feeling sorry for yourself. And the second dart, the problematic one, is when I'm like, oh no, I shouldn't be feeling that way. I shouldn't allow myself to feel that way. And Diane was just so right. Like, no, of course, if you're feeling sorry for yourself, feel sorry. Feel as sorry for yourself as you want, as you need to feel, you know? It's hard to be a human being. Accept the fact that it's hard. Feel sorry for yourself. Say like, holy Moses, it's so hard. And I, you know, life is just incredibly difficult. It's when you start fighting it that you panic, you know? Yeah. We have to find ways of getting past this fight or flight way of thinking. And it's just, obviously, it's written very deep into us and for, you know, I suppose, good evolutionary reasons. But it doesn't work well when it comes to the question of mental pain in contemporary psychological life. We apply the same fight or flight to our thinking. And because it's all going on in your head, there's nowhere to go. And then you panic and you start freaking out. And the next thing you know, you're in this spiral. And if you're a certain kind of person like me, it becomes a death spiral. And if you're many other kinds of people, it's an addiction off in another direction. You know, as I say, for, for the existentialists, it's an addiction off into distraction. And you totally forget about your own existence because you're so busy with your Instagram or whatever it happens to be. Or you're spending too much money thinking you're going to solve things that way. Or you're ignoring the people around you, you know, countless ways. This is a hard question to ask, and it's even harder to answer. But I know that you can answer it. If anyone is listening to this and they are someone who may be contemplating suicide or even contemplating contemplating it, what would you say to them? I would say to that person um, two things. First of all, if you're in a position where you can get out of the space that you're in right now, physical space, if you were in a position to take a walk, 
Get up out of the space that you're in, take a walk, get outside, breathe some fresh air, you know, avoid bridges for obvious reasons. Just get out and take a walk. It's going to help you. I promise it's going to help. It's going to give you a little bit of space. The other thing is text somebody. If you're somebody who can call 988, the suicide helpline, or text 988, the suicide helpline, and you feel like that's a good thing for you, great, do that. Those people can really help. But if you're someone who isn't so inclined, don't worry about who it is you're texting. You know, text anybody. You can text your roofing contractor and say, I'm having a really bad day. How's your day going? And if that person doesn't reply to your text, text somebody else. You really need two things. You need to change the space that you're in. Ideally, if possible, get a tiny little bit of exercise that you'll get from walking. Probably also walking will kind of open the blinders for you a little bit. It'll lessen the pressure for you. It'll ease the pain a little bit walking. And also some kind of human contact will do all of those things. And if someone reaches out to you, if someone texts you or something and you can tell, hey, this person is struggling, don't try to solve their problems. You can ask them directly, are you feeling suicidal? That's totally fine. If they are, they'll probably tell you, yeah, I'm feeling suicidal. Thank you for asking. It can be a very helpful question, but you don't have to ask that question. Just let them know that you're eager to listen to whatever's going on with them. Like, yeah, okay, tell me more. What's going on? Create an open space for them to, to reach out to you. Those are the single most important things to do. You've got to open the blinders a little bit because you've narrowed your thinking down to where you think suicide is the only choice. It's not the only choice. You know, as this fellow who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge famously remarked, as soon as he jumped off the bridge, he realized that everything in his life was totally fixable except for the fact of having jumped. And that's the truth. Everything in your life is totally fixable except for making the attempt. So don't do that. Yeah, and look, I don't want to say that someone doesn't have the right to die. Right. I believe that Schopenhauer is right when he says that our most incontestable right is the right to our own life. But I also think you are right to say in your book, and I think you just said this now, that in almost every case, suicide is a bad choice. And sometimes we just need someone to help us see that. Yep. It's almost always the wrong decision. Um, I, too... Um, an advocate of medical assistance in dying. I think it's an extremely important right. I think that we can't meaningfully talk about having any rights at all unless we also have the right to our own lives. But I genuinely believe that the vast majority of the times, violence is going to make things worse. Taking your life unexpectedly in the middle of, you know, whatever it is you're going through without talking to the people around you, all this is an incredibly violent thing. And I'll tell you something else that I always tell people. If you are going to go out on that walk, just to give yourself a little bit of breathing room, as you pass somebody on that walk, look for somebody that you could smile at. Ideally, somebody who you think is kind of not expecting a smile. Hmm. And when you smile at that person, Suddenly, something good has taken place in the world that otherwise would never have taken place. You just created something good, and you don't know how that smile might have completely changed that person's day, maybe reassured them about their lives, just getting this unexpected smile from you. You have this power as a human being. Do that, and then you'll suddenly remember, you know what? I am capable of doing something, something so small, but something so simple and good. And if you can do that, then 
we need you around, you know, we need people who are willing to do that. I think you say this in the book and it sounds morbid, but it's, I don't think it is. You say, if nothing else, you can always kill yourself tomorrow. Yeah, it's the old stoic argument. You know, you can always kill yourself tomorrow. The door is always open. The Romanian philosopher Choran said that people used to come to him wanting to kill themselves all the time. And he'd say, what's your hurry? Suicide is a positive act. You can always do it tomorrow. And he said, I expected this to make them feel better. And you know what? It always did make them feel better. And consequently, they didn't kill themselves. And it's true. You can always do it tomorrow. So what's your hurry? Give yourself one more day. Go give someone an unexpected smile. If, you know, the hell with it. If you're going to kill yourself anyway, take one more day and do whatever that you, you, you please, you know, take it for selfish reasons, just for yourself. Go have a last look around. On behalf of people who are in a place in their life where they really do feel cut off and actually are cut off, they may not have family, right? they may not have friends, they may be alone, so they may not have relationships to throw themselves into. Right. What do they do? What do you tell that person? Yeah, it's an incredibly important question. I correspond with a lot of these people who write to me and say, you know, but Clancy, you've got, you know, you've got this, you're a professor, you've got this, you've got that, you've got your children, you've got all these things. I don't have any of these things. I'm thinking of several male friends who have written to me to say, you know, I read, read your book or I read an earlier article of yours and I didn't kill myself and we got to talking. Hmm. There are lots of these people out there who feel like they have nothing and no one to reach out to. And this is part of why they're feeling suicidal. What I want to say to anyone who's feeling that way is look me up on the internet and shoot me an email. You've got at least one person who wants you around, somebody who has failed at suicide over and over and over again and needs to talk to other people who are feeling this way because you'll help me feel like my life has meaning. You can help me just by shooting me an email and saying that you feel hopeless. Anyone out there in the world who is feeling suicidal, there are so many other people around you who are also feeling this way, if you can stick it out, you're going to wind up helping people unexpectedly. So don't close yourself off from that unnecessarily. If there's one thing you know about life, you've experienced this, it's unpredictable. It changes all the time. And the loneliness and the isolation and the suffering you're experiencing now, it's the same way. It's going to change. It might not feel like it's going to change, but it's going to. So you may as well stick around and see what happens next. Clancy, what can I say? Um, This is a hard conversation. I appreciate you. I I appreciate this book. It's a human book, an all-too-human book. And while it's tough at times, it's ultimately a life-affirming book. No, well, thank you, Sean. It's really been an incredibly helpful conversation. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about this. I mean, it's like you started off the conversation. How do we speak honorably about suicide? It seems to me the most important thing we could try to speak honorably about is the question of whether or not we should go on living and recognize that we have to honor 
everyone who is wrestling with that question of whether they should go on living. I mean, that is a person who deserves our honor. That's a person who's taking things seriously. I think about that, that young girl in the psychiatric hospital, and I so hope that she's still alive. She would become, if she's around, such a gift to the people around her, you know? It's these people who care so much that wind up trying to take their own lives. And um, we need you people who care so much. There are a lot of people who don't care so much. We don't need them as much. <laughs> well, I'm glad you botched all your suicide attempts. And... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Me too. Because we need you here too, man. Well, I appreciate it. I'm very grateful to be here. Again, Clancy Martin's book is How Not to Kill Yourself. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline can be reached by dialing 988. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.